Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up. Yeah, and we're in the studio again. This has been a while. I know. and I don't I'm, even I'm, remember the last time. I don't either, but I have never been here where there's been snow on the ground. And that there's is snow true. on the ground right now. That's true. It's been an interesting weather for us over the last few weeks. Oh, what? All three weekends straight. Yeah. Now, Crazy. sometime in the 60s, my mom used to talk about three Wednesdays in March that it snowed 12 inches each. I remember that. Mm. Each weekend, mm-hmm. each wow. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Wow. Huh. Interesting. Well, it's good to be back. And we have our favorite historical guests with us today. Whoop, whoop. Sandy Ouellette and Nancy Marie. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here on this snowy day. That's Icy right. day, I guess it is. <laughs> y'all, sl- y'all slip, slided. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I did slide a few times coming in. It was uh, an interesting journey, but we all made it and we're here safe. And uh, I think we've got a great podcast. Oh, my gosh. You know, I've been waiting for this one for a little while. Whenever this one first popped in my head and I called Sandy and she was on it just like that so great information she's done a lot of research on this yeah well these two ladies have more in their head than you and i have uh, have ever known i think so Sharon, uh, maybe, maybe you can t- tell uh, your audience how, why this became interesting to you what you heard yes yes um the anesthesiologist started a podcast oh isn't that interesting yes that is interesting <laughs> and it's called what the etherist Ah, the and, etherist. And so I listened to it. Maybe they listen to our podcast. I bet they do. I bet yeah. they do. Um, but I really liked what they did, but it didn't seem complete. What they did is went back to the first anesthetist. Oh. Yeah. And so they talked about the different ones. And then, of course, it morphed over to the first anesthesiologist, all of that. But the information was interesting, but just told without the benefit of nurse anesthetist in it. Hmm. And, you know, we always say that nurses were the first ones to give anesthesia. We've been giving anesthesia since the Civil War, but it popped in my head. Who was that? I don't even know. I just know the elevator speech, but I didn't know the answers to that. But guess what, Jeremy? I knew who would know the answers. Oh, yes. 
Yes, you did. <laughs> so I picked up the telephone. And so, Sandy, you went and listened to all of those I podcasts, did. I, I, I did. I enjoyed them, as, as a matter of fact. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just think about it. What was it? Four years ago, you didn't even know what a podcast was. And now you're Absol- not only on podcasts all the time, you're listening to other podcasts. Well, you know, I was over to the school, uh, uh, Wake Forest, the other day, teaching a class and Dr. Gonzalez, Dr. G, they call him, mm-hmm. he said, I can't believe in 2005 when I knew you, you would not only be doing podcasts, but as many as you're doing. That just did not <laughs> seem like the person I knew in 2005. <laughs> uh, well, so Sharon, go ahead and tell them what the, the name of this podcast is. In Search of the First Anesthetist. Very interesting. And I love it. I'm looking forward to this one. I really am. This is, this is going to be good. We're going to all learn something. Well, you know, it really does appear that historical questions regarding anesthesia rests in the eye of the beholder or the investigator, <laughs> right? So True that. As, as Sandy is going to let us know here in a minute, and Nancy as well, um, and views of some events by CRNAs definitely do differ than what the anesthesiologists say. And, and one example that I, that was found in a previously recorded podcast regarding quality of care studies in anesthesia, and it was viewed by ASA and ANA, and they were a little different, weren't they, Sharon? <laughs> they were. <laughs> they were. I can't um, remember what number. We'll have to look at it. It's all up. in the interpretation. Exactly. Yes, it is. <laughs> and yes, whoever is. writes the history. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to write some history today. So Nancy and Sandy are going to expand upon this debate, and um, hopefully we'll get a a rounded context. I like it. All right. All right. Well, Sandy, you want to kick us off? Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, as a young nurse anesthetist, and certainly throughout my career, when you pick up any major anesthesia textbooks. Most of these books are edited by physicians. They're very good books. And for many years, before we had nurse anesthesia texts and many, many more that we've produced more recently, that was all the books we had. But the first chapter in almost all of these books, or somewhere in the front, is um, a chapter on history. And it always surprised me when I looked at the books that I had available, you could read that chapter on history and you would never know that a nurse anesthetist had ever uh, been involved in anesthesia in the United States, much less being the first to administer anesthesia in the United States. So I began to know that our view of history and the view by anesthesiologists, at least organized anesthesiology, is somewhat different. And so I went back and looked recently it's some some good stuff I think and one of the things that I find was a wonderful book by the late Ted Eager and uh, Dr. Sademan and Westhorpe, The Wondrous Story of Anesthesia. Now that was published in 2014 and for the person that really really is interested in doing a deep dive uh, not just about the nurse anesthesia history but just history of anesthesia in general It is the most comprehensive I think I've ever seen, but it does have a lot about the early people that discovered anesthesia, all the different agents, uh, our volatile agents, whole chapters on that and how they evolved. Muscle relaxes the same way, so it's a very big book and it's comprehensive. But what was really good in that book, there were two chapters written by nurse anesthetists, and one was by Evan Coe. Mm-hmm. and uh, CRNA, The Evolution of Nurse Anesthesia in the United States. And the other was by Susan Kalk and Dr. Karen Ploss on the development of the certification exam by the AANA, 1933 to 2012. Now, that was so good because we've not been included in books like this in the past. But if you knew Ted Eager you would understand why. You may have remembered when Desverain was being marketed, Mm -hmm. uh, he came to Winston-Salem and at Wake Forest University, there was a video uh, with him teaching both residents and students and um, going into the OR with them and really explaining uptake and distribution. It was a wonderful piece that was done. And I got to meet him then. And there's one thing about Ted Eager. There was not one political bone 
in his body. What he wanted to do was just to make sure everybody learned. And he had an equal number of students and an equal number of residents in his class. So that's good. And then uh, the etherist that you told me about, Sharon, and of course I, I got it and listened to it right away <laughs> with uh, great delight. And, uh, and then there's other books, such as there's a book written by the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists, 50 Years, and I have that book in my home library. That was uh, between 1955 and 2005. But if you look at a lot of these books, uh, you know, there's a lot of the same thing, except there's somebody missing mm. for the most part. <laughs> and the unsung hero, I must say, and that would be the nurse anesthetist. Well, we're going to change that today. Yes. Yes. So, all right, Nancy, where do nurse anesthetists receive most of their historical information from? Obviously a different place <laughs> <laughs> yes, than definitely. our medical counterparts. Well, they're... Um, I guess probably one of the oldest actual book that's been written about nurse anesthesia was done by Virginia Thatcher. It's not, uh, you can't get a copy of it anymore, but it's not published anymore. But it's really a good history book. And it's called History of Anesthesia with Emphasis on the Nurse Specialist. And it was published in 1956. And there are sections in there that cover the art of anesthesia, uh, the fact of a new science, um, and also about organization of nurse anesthesia. Hmm. And then another history book was written in my lifetime uh, by um, Bankert, and it was called Watchful Care, A History of Anesthesia's Nurse Anesthetist, and it was published in 1989. And the chapters covered the specialty from the beginning until 1989. And then uh, Sharon Pierce and Jeremy Stanley (laughs) uh, do the Beyond the Mass historical sections, episodes which highlight CRNA pioneers of distinction and major events that shaped the specialty. And lastly, uh, Sandra Ouellette, Betty Horton, and Jackie Rawls have just released a book called The Global Voice for Nurse Anesthesia, the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists, and it covers the time period from 1989 until 2021. And this book is global, like all the countries that use nurse anesthetists throughout the world, and uh, also the beginning of the Federation of Nurse, you know. Which reminds me, my my copy is in the trunk of my car that I want Sandy to really sign. She just did uh, the basic signature. I've got to get it. It was generic. Yes, it was. (laughs) Too generic for you, Sharon. (laughs) I think I need a a little bit more on there. (laughs) Particularly since you have celebrated your 30-year anniversary this year, you and your class. That's hard. Graduated in 1992. I know. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. But see, my copy, actually, Jackie signed it too. So I've got to get you to sign it. And then next time I see Betty. Well, for someone who doesn't, for any of these, uh, anyone out there that doesn't have a copy of this book, it's really a beautiful book. It is. And and, um, so I encourage everyone to buy one. And they're not expensive. I know, 20 bucks or something. They wanted to make it accessible. Exactly, because to the the world countries we should do something around that maybe buy a few copies and have them all sign it and then maybe do something through the podcast and give them away because it'll be collector's editions oh yes yeah with the signatures on them yeah Yeah. now one thing uh, according to our literature i'm very happy to report very soon this year we should be uh receiving watchful care too yes it's being done by the historian paul warden Mm -hmm. i have talked to him uh in december and uh it was my understanding he was supposed to finish the text by the end of this month right now really but that means uh it's going to be uh it'll probably go to reviewers i would expect right i reviewed one and uh and then in addition to that the printing of our book it takes several, several months. So I wouldn't expect to see this until the very earliest, the middle of the summer. But I believe we will have it this year. And I'm real excited about that because our history has not been written since 1989. So this is going to pick up 1990 mm-hmm. to 2022. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that has happened, of yes. course, as we all know. Now, I wonder, are schools still requiring uh, 
uh, watchful care because I had to read it before I started. It is an- from what I understand. It is very often requested, but AANA is not printing it anymore. And They're I hope they get. will. I hope they will uh, reevaluate that because it's going to be really two books with Watchful Care One being up until 1989 and Watchful Care Two being 1990 mm-hmm. forward. So I, I don't think we can uh, really, you know eliminate watchful care one but i do understand it's not being printed right now hmm. we yeah. need to check on the website mm-hmm. see if yeah. you can still get yeah. it so sandy when members of the asa talk about the first anesthetist they often discuss some key players in the discovery of anesthesia and one that we'd like you know to hear a little bit more about is humphrey davy who was humphrey davy Okay, well, well, he lived between 1778 and 1829, and he was a British chemist and inventor, and he really described the capacity of nitrous oxide to prevent pain, suggesting its use in surgical procedures. But no one really took him seriously, they thought, because, you know, they were were playing with it. It was laughing gas. Mm -hmm. It was their parties that they were having then. So he experimented on himself. And uh, it was called laughing gas because he noted that it made him laugh. And uh, so, um, so some believe that Davies should be regarded as the first anesthesiologist. Hmm. Well, I don't think so. He was a chemist and an inventor, and he could have been a druggie. I'm not quite I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. sure. but he had great parties. But he did. But he did. He did really um, begin to present nitrous oxide (laughs) all right nancy tell us about crawford long and you know i know he's from georgia because when i go down there you will see the signs to his home place well crawford long on march 30th 1842 and as sharon said he was a georgia surgeon and also a pharmacist but on that particular date for the first time he used inhaled diethyl ether as an anesthetic for surgery. And then on June 6th, 1942, he removed a second tumor from the neck of a patient, Venerable was his last name, and by September 1946, he performed eight more surgical procedures using ether. Long only published his results seven years later in the Southern Medical and Surgical Journal. His recognition was later uh, than William Morton's recognition for diethyl ether. But he was honored on a U.S. postal stamp in 1940 and recognized for the inspiration. He was named the important person on the first National Doctor's Day on March 30, 1991. Hmm. You know, I'm still going back to Humphrey Davy here, thinking in the 1700s, him talking in that voice, you know, at the parties. Can you imagine what that was like? They were like, oh, this guy's whacked out, but he's a lot of fun. Um, How do I get an invitation? <laughs> All right, Nancy. So who was Horace Wells? Okay. Um, I said Nancy. I yeah, meant Sandy. Yeah, he, he was an American dentist. So now you're seeing the the people that really started this. We have a chemist. Uh, we have a surgeon, we have a dentist, and uh, who pioneered the use of anesthesia in dentistry. And again, he really focused on nitrous oxide. Uh, between 1841 and 1845, he became a reputable dentist in Hartford, Connecticut, where he attracted patients and apprentices. Uh, William Morton was someone that was mentored by uh, Wells. Wells did an unsuccessful demonstration of nitrous oxide at Mass General on January 20th in 1845. In 1846, Morton gave a successful demonstration of ether uh, anesthesia in Boston. He published a letter about his successful trials in 1844 in an attempt to claim the discovery of anesthesia, but was unsuccessful. He committed suicide two days before the Medical Society of Paris gave credit to him for the discovery of anesthesia. So he showed it, but he never published it. It never got out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, um, and he, he died a very bad death and, and before he ever knew that someone had recognized him uh, for the discovery of anesthesia. How did he kill himself? Don't know. Don't, 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 don't know the details, but I found that. Well, in, you weren't around. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was, uh, that was the, uh, in uh, Dr. Ted Eager's book. I found, I found that of interest. 
Interesting. Interesting. So, Nancy, we've heard a little bit about William Morton. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? Okay. I want to go back just one second mm-hmm. to Crawford Long. One of the, re- the reason that Crawford Long did not get credit for doing the first successful anesthetic is because he did not publish it. And I'm not sure that I made that very clear when I was talking about him, but he did not publish his results until seven years after he had uh, done his cases, and that was, in the meantime, um, William Morton uh, got the credit for the successful anesthetic in the ether dome. But William Morton lived from 1819 to 1868, and he was also an American dental surgeon And in 1846, he gave the first public demonstration of ether anesthesia uh, during surgery. And, of course, again, that was in the ether dome at Mass General. And it occurred on October 16, 1846, and that is denoted as Ether Day. Uh, Morton and uh, a surgeon, John Warren, made history at the ether dome with the successful use of diethyl ether anesthesia to prevent pain during surgery. So he is credited with gaining the medical world's acceptance of surgical anesthesia. And I will add that he was late for his presentation because he was making a special inhalation piece of equipment uh, to give diethyl ether. But he did get there in time to do his demonstration. You know, and notice there are all these dentists right Uh, i I remember uh, you guys teaching in school years ago if there were any experts who testified about anesthesia they were dentists who did a lot Mm -hmm. of the testifying Mm -hmm. they were considered to be the experts really yeah back in the old days and now they won't see our names to give their anesthesia. Their anesthesia. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you have Which it. Which I don't blame them. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, one thing about Morton that I was just looking over Dr. Eager's uh, book about him this week. Um, you know, he, he he had vision, and he, he clearly was a man uh, that was interested in things that hadn't been discovered yet. But as a person, he was a real disaster. <laughs> really? He was referred to as rogue. A greedy scoundrel, a crook looking for the fast buck, the man who lived on the edge of being jailed for his crimes and misdemeanors, but was also the one who showed the world the benefits of anesthesia. So as a Hmm. professional, he did a lot. As a person, it seemed like he was always running from the law. Yeah, you know, sometimes sometimes people like that are like that, though. You know, they get one part of their life really right, and then they mess up the rest of yeah. it. So. All right, Sandy, so tell us about James Simpson. Well, now we're, we're coming into uh, obstetrician, and he was a Scottish obstetrician, uh, and he began to use chloroform because on the other side of the Atlantic, while we were using ether, they started with chloroform for women uh, for pain during childbirth. And... Uh, and chloroform quickly became popular anesthesia uh, there for surgery and dental procedures in Europe. So they were more likely to use chloroform than we were. So, all right, let's talk about the first anesthetist that they talked about in that ASA historical podcast. And they identified him as John Snow, in which I'm watching, uh, oh gosh, uh, what's that series that everybody's been and i've been watching it too the, are you talking about uh, game of thrones oh and there's a john snow in there and my son mm. would send me these little clips it's, you know nothing john snow <laughs> <laughs> that's all through there but anyway uh, uh so tell us about john snow well john snow uh lived from 1813 to 1858 he was a full-time anesthetist since 18, beginning in 1847, so he was a full-time anesthetist for 11 years. And he's remembered in historical sessions as the first professional anesthetist. Okay. Uh, Dr. Snow uh, popularized using chloroform or chloroforming for obstetrical anesthesia, and his big claim to fame was that he anesthetized Queen Victoria for the birth of Prince Leopold in 1853 and Princess Beatrice in 1857. Now, that was a big thing because 
up until that time, women really did not get anything for pain during labor or delivery because they were supposed, according to the Bible, mm-hmm. they were supposed to suffer during that period of time. So you think he's burning in hell somewhere because he provided no. pain? No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but I know that that was really the start mm-hmm. of obstetrical anesthesia. After that, because uh, Queen Victoria had it done, it was okay for all the women to have it done. Can you imagine the stress he was under? <laughs> yeah. Before you go on, Nancy, I, I looked a little bit deeper into why did it take so long to really find anesthesia and you just hit on it right then because people then thought pain is God's will it's his punishment for our sins the other thing is pain is natural and beneficial and it's essential for healing and there was a a group thought that the individual suffering is unimportant only the group matters not the individual and the other thing, of course, was the production of insensibility by these drugs was too dangerous, which was probably true. <laughs> um, and, um, and anesthesia was not needed to perform surgery. If you had enough healthy, strong men, you know. To hold you down. Yeah, yeah that's right. You didn't need it. <laughs> and, and they didn't think anesthesia could exist. But getting with what you said about taking care of Queen Victoria for the birth of her children, that must have been a tar- terrible job because I didn't notice it until you just mentioned it, but he died a year later. After Prince Beatrice, Princess Beatrice was born. born. Yeah. Might have been the stress. (laughs) Right. Uh, And what happens if you didn't get it right with the queen? That's right. (laughs) Off with your head. (laughs) Yeah. That's probably true. Uh, But Snow developed the first ever anesthesia practice standards and guidelines to guide his colleagues in the use of anesthesia. That was another thing uh, that he contributed to, to anesthesia. He was very suspicious of the hazard delivery of ether and recognized the gift of anesthesia as well as its toxicities and harm. So he saw the good and the bad uh, in anesthesia. He studied the way to give measured and consistent doses of chloroform and to develop the technique to titrate. And chloroform, just as an aside, was kind of deadly to the liver, as we found out later on, much more so than halothane ever was. Now, wasn't John Snow the one that found the water supply? I think it was him, too. There was another book I had to read whenever I was at Yale, uh, and it was on infectious diseases and everything, and uh, cholera. I think he was the one who shut the... But Snow did believe ether anesthesia was safer, but he did prefer chloroform. And he believed the occasional risk found in chloroform should not stand in the way of the skilled anesthetist. So he really was was standardization, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And titration. Mm -hmm. Something that really has stayed with us all those years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Okay, well, Sandy, tell us about the real first anesthetist now. (laughs) Okay. Well, of course, the ANA view of the first anesthetist had to be a nurse anesthetist. Um, and the first recorded nurse anesthetist in the United States was Catherine Lawrence, who lived between 1820 and 1904. And she administered chloroform during the Civil War, uh, which, of course, occurred between 1861 and 1865. She administered anesthesia at a hospital outside of Washington, D.C., during and after the Second Battle of Bull Run in 1863. 
This anesthesia was administered to wounded soldiers on the battlefield. But what I find during, uh, that I added to this uh, just last week during Nurse Anesthetist Week, she also performed other life-saving interventions on soldiers such as suturing, tying bleeding arteries, and resuscitation like administering medication with herbal venom and so forth. Hmm. And also I found an interesting quote that I had not uh, seen before last week. And she apparently said, I rejoice that the time has arrived when nurses are being trained for positions so important. A skilled nurse is as important as a skilled physician. End of quote. And that was during the Civil War. But it took several years for nurses to step forward and formally answer the call to provide anesthesia. And one of the reasons for that delay included lack of training, the non-emergency nature of civilian surgery for the most part, and they didn't have role models, and they didn't have sponsors. The wartime concept, though, and remember, she was one of the first probably on the front lines. And CRNAs, that's been the motto of mm-hmm. our Nurse Anesthesia Week, always on the front lines. And, and um, the, she provided general anesthesia, gradually took hold in surgeons. And they trained and encouraged nurses to assume this important role. And I think we've mentioned before, but it's, it's good to uh, mention it again. Why was it that the surgeons turned to nurses for this role? And in Thatcher's book, you'll find... Uh, They did because nurses would be satisfied with the subordinate role the work required. They would also make anesthesia their one absorbing interest. They weren't going to be looking over the anesthesia screen, really wanting to be the surgeon and see what the Mm. surgeon was doing. They would not look on the situation of anesthesia as one that put them in a position to watch and learn from the surgeon's techniques. And back then, they were really happy to accept comparably low pay and they had a natural aptitude and intelligence to develop a high level of skill of providing the smooth anesthesia and relaxation of the surgeon required so really the first professional nurse anesthetists in the united states uh, were nurses and the first recorded that we have is probably Catherine lawrence uh, during the civil war well now i finally know her name I was going to say, why have we not heard that name? I know, right? See, I always knew the story. I just didn't know the Hmm. name. Do we know much about her at all? Could you find anything? I could not find too much more about her, but somebody did because it was just a little brief post on Facebook last week. And, you know, our little logo, Mm -hmm. uh, they had her in the middle of it. And then there was a couple of things like this quote that they had. But I was unable to find uh, much more uh, than that. I wonder uh, if there's anything in the AANA archives. Could be, could be. I I didn't inquire there, but um, but anyway, she she was the profession of nurse anesthesia was born oh. way back during the time of the Civil War. Well, and Sandy, some things never changed because you said they accepted comparatively lower pay, <laughs> well, and that's still the case today, female. isn't it? I mean, the average CRNA makes a whole lot less than the average well, anesthesiologist. Yeah. Oh, you, you no, come on, debate no, me on this No, one. Uh, let me just say, <laughs> I always, because we're about 50-50 male-female right. versus mainstream nursing is 9 yeah. to 10%, and I always tell everybody i'm glad that the men flocked to this profession or we would still be a very Mm, low paid profession because if you're a feminized pink collar um profession the pay remains low Hmm. interesting maybe we should do a podcast on that one day Oh, well. That'd be a good one. You, the money guy, would certainly. And I was <laughs> I would like right. That. It was Jon Snow, and the book is called The Ghost Map. I couldn't remember the name of it. Hmm. Um, and it talks about how he is the one who located the contaminated well that was given cholera to everybody in London. Huh. How about that? Interesting. Yeah, John's he, had a, he was a jack so, of all trades. Yeah. Right? Yes, he was. He probably was a dentist, too. Who knows? Probably <laughs> so, yeah, back trend. in that time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Nancy, who were the nurse anesthetists in early in the early American hospitals? Well, first of all, the earliest American hospitals, there are three uh, that 
first three hospitals were Pennsylvania Hospital of Philadelphia, which was founded by Benjamin Franklin, and it was the first general hospital in the United States, and it was founded in 1751, so that was after Hmm. the Civil War. The next hospital to be founded was the New York Hospital in 1791, and then the third hospital was Massachusetts General Hospital in 1811. So those are the oldest three hospitals uh, that we know about. Uh, Catholic. So nuns, wait, back up. You said the did I hear you say the Pennsylvania Hospital was founded after the Civil War? Or, oh, uh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. It wasn't. It was okay. in 1751. I'm sorry. No, I, I thought I might have forgotten my dates. No, you <laughs> didn't forget your dates. I read them wrong. Okay. Uh, the earliest recording nurse to specialize in anesthesia was Sister Mary Bernard Sheridan. Uh, she, Sister Bernard took over anesthesia duties in 1877 at St. Vincent's Hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania. Although Catholic sisters seemed to be the most influential force in teaching nurses to administer anesthesia in the 1800s, it was William Mayo at St. Mary's Hospital in Minneapolis who is credited for really promoting the popularity of nurse anesthesia practice. Okay. And uh, now I will say I have heard of Sister Mary Bernard Sheridan. Mm-hmm. I've heard that name before. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, incorrectly, yeah. I said and taught students for years and years she was the first recorded nurse to administer anesthesia. But I was, I need to be corrected because Catherine Lawrence was a nurse. Hmm. It was during the Civil War, and she was recorded. So she, she is the one. I, I think we could say for Sister Bernard Sheridan, she was the first Catholic nun to be recorded, and many of them were nuns during that time. Well, it'd be interesting to to see in the archives. I, I'm giving you, an, you ladies, another project <laughs> <laughs> to call the archives and see if we can find out something about her, because exactly like you said, I had never heard right, of her. Right. I just yeah. knew that we dated back that far. Yeah. Hmm. And so she's not been credited with what she needs to be credited with right well the catholic nuns were very instrumental in establishing nurse anesthesia in the midwest Mm -hmm. uh so you know they they really worked hard i mean in the midwest in a lot of the surgical areas in the midwest and the one thing about them is that they were very very eager to help other people learn about anesthesia so it wasn't like something that they kept to themselves they were eager to teach and eager to show and train people to be nursing us. Well, I think something that was talked about earlier, um, when you look at Crawford Long and William Morton, and, uh, you know, if you don't tell anybody, but I think the, the nuns were really good about keeping up with their cases and had data and basically published it. So that would be the reason. And did our early prayer. people, mm-hmm. such as Alice McGall, mm-hmm. you know, and Agatha Hodgins and all of those the people. So that was very important. Now, is that because the nuns didn't have men back then that they had to take care of, you know? Well, you know, and all, there, Jeremy, the only ones that had time to <laughs> do it. Group. Is that the problem? Do you realize you're outnumbered here? <laughs> well, I do, but I'm just saying back then Well, that you know, was if we don't have to cook your meals and wash your clothes. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> it frees so they up had a lot time of time. to do this. Yeah. I'm just making a point, you know. I'm not saying it was the right P- thing. Particularly but. cooking their meals. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, not that I do, but anyway, we digress. So, Sandy, talk about uh, the disputes between the two anesthesia pro- professionals, um, and who is the mother of anesthesia, okay. and who does AA and A recognize? I'm sure that the stories are different. <laughs> you know, um, our history probably would parallel pretty much but there are some discrepancies if you look at a history written by a physician versus one written and recorded by us and one that came to mind for me was um, the mother of anesthesia it is very clear in the nurse anesthesia community that the mother of anesthesia for nurse anesthesiologist that's for you McKenna um, (laughs) is Alice McGall (laughs) I love it (laughs) 
That's for you, Mike. That's right. Send us a text. Nurse say anesthesiologist, you got the message. mother of anesthesia, was Alice McGall. So, Nancy, what does the uh, the ASA say? Who do they recognize? Well, the mother of anesthesia or anesthetist for physician and anesthesiologist is Lorette McMeekin, and she lived from 1878 to 1970. Now, Miss McMeekin was married to Francis McMeekin, and he lived from 1879 to 1939, and he organized the International Anesthesia Research Society and was the first editor of the first journal of physician and dental anesthetist. Although Lorette was not a physician, she made vital contributions to the development of the worldwide organized anesthesia and its journals. When Frances suffered a disability in 1911, her husband, in other words, she worked closely with him on his efforts to organize the practice of anesthesiology and also create a scholarly journal for the specialty, which I've already named. After his death, she continued to serve the specialty of physician anesthesiologist for another 17 years. And during that 17 years, she was the assistant executive secretary editor of the International Anesthesia Research Society and its journal, uh, Current Researched in Anesthesia Analgesia. Uh, a m- memorial tribute labeled her the mother of anesthetist, and that occur is, was announced in Anesthesia Analgesia in 2012. Uh, so. Now, Sandy, as we mentioned before, you know, nuns played, or Catholic nuns played a large role in the beginning of the nurse anesthesia specialty, and for nurse anesthetists who've, you know, basically served on the front line in every conflict and war since now we know Catherine Lawrence. So were nuns influential on educating nurses and anesthesia globally as well? Yes, they were. Um, I went back and looked at the book that we just published uh, the, uh, last year, and uh, there are 43 member countries in the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists, and there was uh, several, such as Switzerland, South Korea, Austria, France, the Netherlands, Serbia, and of course us, that credit nuns with really getting the role for nurses in anesthesia started in their country. In fact, uh, we may have mentioned before in South Korea, the founder of the Korean Association of Nurse Anesthetists was Sister Margaret Comer, who happened to be a nun from the United States, but also a CRNA. And she uh, was sent to Korea as a young woman and she saw the need for other providers. So she really started the Korean Association of Nurse Anesthetists um, after it had been operational and doing well for a decade or so. The physician anesthetist there tried to shut them down. Uh, they went to the Minister of Health, and um, they are just alive and well, even as I speak today. And they just love Sister Margaret Comer. She's retired. She's back in New York now. But as far as she's concerned, Korea is her home, mm-hmm. and, um, and she's a wonderful person. But yeah, I mean, they had influence in other, other parts of the world. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So, Nancy, let's talk about the terminology referring to providers of anesthesia and how that's changed over the years and continues to change. Well, one of the earlier names for anesthetist was etherist. And then in the United States, there were anesthetist and anesthesiologist, where in the European countries, they're called anesthetists for the most part. And then now you hear a lot of nurse anesthesiologist, physician anesthesiologist, dental anesthesiologist, veterinarian anesthesiologist. Those have become more common terms because uh, there are dentists that give anesthesia, veterinarians that give anesthesia, as well as, you know, our, our... physician anesthesiologist and nurse anesthetist. Now, aren't the British uh, changing their name to anesthesiologist? Anesthesiologist is an American term, just like 
CRNA is an American yeah. term. Anesthesiologist was coined because when they really became involved in anesthesia in the United States, we were already here, mm-hmm. and we were anesthetists. So they coined that to differentiate. But then later on, they found out that nobody knew what an anesthesiologist was. And so through branding and trying to make themselves uh, better recognized, they put physician anesthesiologist. Right, because their studies showed that uh, the public didn't understand that they were a physician. That's right. And so that was well and good. But then later on, they tried to, or they didn't try, they did, uh, they equated an anesthesia assistant as an anesthetist and a nurse anesthetist as an anesthetist, and they were throwing us in the same pot. Mm-hmm. So that really led the forward battle to have another descriptor, other, either certified registered nurse anesthetist or certified registered nurse anesthesiologist, always using nurse anesthesiologist in front. So you have nurse anesthesiologist, physician anesthesiologist, dental anesthesiologist, and veterinary anesthesiologist now. And that's how that all came about. Now, uh, there was some discussion a number of years ago because, you know, some people call them MDAs, Medical Doctor of Anesthesia, and they find that offensive. They do, yeah, very much so. And I... Or ologist. Or, yeah. Or, they don't or, like... I can hardly blame them yeah, for that. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, but I can... I, I wish I could find the email because I emailed John Gard to ask him about the origin of MDA and gosh it's been so long ago I can't remember mm-hmm. the answer that he sent me but do y'all remember the origin of that no Mm-mm. no I just know that I sent a memo one time and had MDA in it and I got a lot of telephone calls from the anesthesiologist telling me not to ever do that again. <laughs> well I think they probably feel it's derogatory mm-hmm. Uh, because it's like you're qualifying your MD status. I don't know. Yeah, hmm. interesting. But they don't like it. Yeah, well, they said that they're basically their degree is not medical doctor of anesthesia. They're, right. Well, that's they're, true. They're a do- you know, they are their degree is as a medical doctor. Medical doctor mm-hmm. with a specialty. Mm-hmm. Yes. So mm-hmm. interesting. All right, Sandy, we're going to put you on the hook here. Okay, you're in the hot seat. Who was the first anesthetist? Well, you know, Jeremy, I I really thought about that so much when we were looking at these little debates that we're having. And I thought, I can solve that real quick. (laughs) So I went to the oldest history ever recorded. That would be the Holy Bible. And I went to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21-22. And what it said was, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the area with flesh. And from the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made woman and brought her to him. So problem solved. (laughs) We don't need to argue about this. That's true. You know, God God was the first (laughs) anesthetist. In reality, we're never the first at anything. Yeah. You know? I mean, history replays and replays and replays, and you'll never be the first at anything. And, you know, I was talking recently to a colleague at the, she's in the big cardiac unit, uh, CRNA there, at the Cleveland Clinic. In fact, she administered my husband's anesthesia when he had a valve repaired there about eight or nine years ago. And uh, we were just talking about this very thing, and she said, you know, some people may say also God was the first surgeon. True that. That's true. Took that rib yeah. out. So I said, don't say that. Head <laughs> is big, big enough. <laughs> well, you could also say that he was the first PACU nurse because he woke him up. There you go. That's there right. you go. That's, that's right. So that's anyway. Right. So do either of you want to have it? tell us any concluding thoughts as we wrap this up to, here today? I think um, this is a, a good place to uh, to end this as we end uh, Nurse Anesthesia Week for um, 2022. And um, I would just like to say what a wonderful opportunity it's been for me for over 50 years now to be a nurse anesthetist. I had a very good uh, educational uh, background and training here at Wake Forest uh, many years ago. And there was never a day 
that um, I dreaded going to work, whether it was to teach a class, to administer a anesthesia program, or to be in the clinical area when I did a lot of that. Uh, I met with students at Duke on Monday. Uh, we talked about the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. Nancy and I met with the Wake Forest students on Wednesday, and we did five hours of history. Had a mm. working lunch, um, and it was uh, it was uh, uh, just a great day with them. And one of the things I uh, really tried to send home, send them home with that day, it is no better time to be a nurse anesthetist than it is today. Um, we are skilled. We're knowledgeable. Uh, we have uh, our credentials by 2025. We'll be uh, doctoral prepared. And we are a solution to anesthesia problems. We're not the problem. Quality, costs, and access. And so as long as we take care of ourselves and don't hurt ourselves internally, we'll be fine. But, you know, I think the training in anesthesia, and Sharon, this is 30-year anniversary for you now. And, um, you know, probably some of the memories have dimmed somewhat, <laughs> but some of them probably <laughs> stay with you forever. But in 2002, uh, just right before I, uh, I retired, I wanted to uh, get something recorded on the history of our nurse anesthesia program, which started in 1942. And there was one of our graduates who wrote a very powerful paragraph, and I'd like to share that now. Um, she says, attending the, it was the North Carolina Baptist Hospital anesthesia program 21 years ago gave me a career that I still love and find rewarding and fulfilling. But more importantly, it changed the course of my life. The training and life lessons received there instilled a sense of confidence I did not possess before undertaking the discipline of anesthesia. At the time, I did not appreciate that developing the courage required to approach a patient with a difficult airway would produce in me the same courage required to make life choices, build healthy relationships, raise beautiful children, be a true friend, reach out to strangers, and have faith to reach out to the hand of God. And this was Sherry Jessup Babbitt, who graduated in 2002. And I think it says it all. It, it makes us grow up. We become a much different person after our experience in anesthesia. And those lessons take us through life, not only in the operating room, but in other places as well. So people should be very thankful uh, that they are a part of uh, the educational process. And for me, it was one of the greatest gifts of my life to be able to do this. Well, I feel a lot like Sandy does. Um, I probably uh, shouldn't say this, but I really didn't like nursing. And I, I, tell, I tell people that I've interviewed and that sort of thing, I just really didn't like nursing. Um, I'm not a, a real extroverted person like Sandy is. No. I didn't like <laughs> I, it. It was, it was really hard for me, sure. you know, to go in every day and and a lot of times have different patients and different people that I'd never talked to before and also at at that point in nursing now I take out the current nursing okay I, I felt like I had reached a point where I couldn't go any further in learning and that sort of thing and that just um really made it even worse for me and so I chose to look at anesthesia and actually quite frankly when I was in a, I was ended up an operating room nurse which was good for me because you know I didn't have to talk to many people at all except <laughs> you know surgeons and, uh, <laughs> and anyway um, I guess I can mention his name Dr. Irving had me relieved one day of my circulating duties and I was called to his office which scared me to death and he was the one who asked me if I was inter would ever be interested in nurse anesthesia. And so I applied, and I ended up getting accepted. And it was everything in the world that I needed. I mean, it, it, was, it was something that challenged me mentally. It challenged me... Um, sometimes physically. <laughs> physically, yeah, sometimes. And emotionally and in every way. But there was... It's like... So much from the time I grad went entered anesthesia school to when I retired, 
has changed so much that it's like it was always something new Mm -hmm. a new drug a new monitor a new other type of equipment uh, a new type of surgery like you know going from all open surgeries to laparoscopy and now robotic and uh, it's just a career that is always moving it's the mm-hmm. gift always, that keeps on giving. I know. Mm-hmm. Always challenging you. Yeah. Always giving you some new piece of information. So uh, you always learn something. Yeah. Every, every, Almost every day. Every you single learn day. something, mm-hmm. or something new happens because no individual. Uh, we're individuals. So when you anesthetize a patient. It's different. He or mm-hmm. she is different from anyone right. you ever took care of mm-hmm. before. So it is, to me, the greatest profession that was ever, ever came on this earth. I don't know of anything that could ever be uh, more complete in serving all of my needs that I had. Well, you know, there well. was just a, uh, I, I may, it may have been from the U.S. News and World Report, top jobs. Did you mm-hmm. say that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And nurse practitioner was listed number one, but nurse anesthetist was listed number eight. Anesthesiologist, I think, was listed number fourteen. If yeah, I it remember was correctly. out of the top ten this year. Yeah, and surgeons was twenty seven. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That that was just released. Yep. Eighty eight percent of nurse anesthetists would choose the same career. Yeah, again. I don't know many that that don't enjoy giving anesthesia. I mean, mm-hmm. there are some, but I don't know many. And, and Nancy, to your point. Um, you made a lot of points in there, but I was just thinking when Sharon reiterated, sometimes physical, I, the patients probably were a little smaller back when you were doing it than they are now, right? <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, you live and learn, and I did learn about muscle relaxants because one put their arms around me one day. <laughs> oh, okay. Boop, you're out. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know more of a fitting way to end this one, Sharon. I, I think that's a wrap. I believe so. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help it grow, Sharon, what's some of the ways they can help us grow? Well, number one, leave us a review, but make Mm -hmm. it positive. There's enough negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell your friends, uh, put it on social media and help us grow because we are in the top 50 medical podcast in the country that's right and where do you want to go jeremy well you know i always want to be number one but you're happy with number 10 so somewhere in between one and ten would be good right absolutely (laughs) until next time it's a wrap As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. 
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.